as you're all sitting comfortably. I'm Roman Maddox, I'm director of the Institute for Government. Delighted to have you here this evening in the Speaker's House. Many thanks to John Burko for that, and thanks also to Zurich Insurance, who've uh, taken a keen interest in this element of our program. And we do this at the Institute because it has um, occurred to us for many years, as it has to many of you, that the job of being a minister, and indeed the challenge of being parachuted into being a minister, is one of the most formidable things that can happen to you in a professional life. We run a program uh, called, in a friendly way, How to Be a Minister, um, which has various elements within it. One is the Ministers Reflect series, which many uh, people, have, uh, many former ministers have contributed, and that takes um, uh, testimony, if you like, from people who have been through exactly that experience of trying to get things done as a, as a minister. Uh, we have many records with, uh, it seems to be kind of ringing truth of that um, uh, in our Ministers Reflect series, which is organized, as is this whole program, by Daniel Foreman here at the front. We're going to show a very short video um, of why we do what we do, and then we're going to have a conversation with Ken Clark and Jack Straw. I'm delighted to have them both with us, urgent message going to Ken Clark. And um, as many of you know, there's uh, likely to be a division bell at seven, so we're really going to crack on. So that, let's play the video. People get into politics and try to become ministers to change things for the better. Now more than ever, the country needs effective political leadership. But ministers today are grappling with huge challenges of Brexit, while the pressure mounts on public services, housing and infrastructure. In crises both at home and abroad, ministers need to demonstrate competence to the public. But there's little preparation before people become ministers, and while they're ministers, there's little support or professional development. This makes them less effective than they should be at achieving change, which matters for individual ministers, for the government, and for the country as a whole. So what does it take to be an effective minister? Here at the Institute for Government, our role is to help make government more effective. Promoting effective political leadership is an important part of that. We do this through research, one-to-one -one support for ministers, roundtables and workshops. That's why we launched Ministers Reflect, a unique archive of interviews with former government ministers. It's designed to record, in ministers' own words, what it takes to be effective in office and how to help them get things done. When you become a minister, you hit the ground running, you do it with very little um, idea of what job you're actually going to be given. You have then to decide what you want to do if you want to change direction. And then you have to be very specific about where you want the new policies to go. It's really important that you don't just end up stuck behind a desk in Whitehall, particularly if you've got a department like education, that you're out there listening to what's going on. And I come from the world of business, so I automatically assume that when you pull the lever, something would happen. And I realised very quickly that in government, uh, even if uh, somebody says that uh, yes, they will do something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will. Follow the Institute for Government for updates on the support that we provide to ministers and how that makes government more effective. The IFTT for putting that together. 
And just to emphasize, a lot of the work we do in this area is necessarily private. It's in one-to-one -one meetings with ministers about how to um, set up an office, how to work with the civil service, how to prioritize and how to get stuff done. But we're here to have this uh, discussion on this. I'm delighted to be joined by Ken Clark, who's been Conservative MP for Rushcliffe since 1970, <coughs> and uh, many uh, roles as minister, including Chancellor, Secretary of State for Health, uh, Education, and both of our panelists, if I can call them that, uh, have also been um, Home Secretary and Justice Secretary. Jack Straw uh, joined Parliament in 1979, Labour MP for Blackburn until 2015, and again many roles, uh, including Foreign Secretary and Leader of the Commons. Can we start off perhaps right at the beginning? Um, Ken, when you, when, you, when you first became a minister, um, what were the challenges, first day? Uh, finding out where the building was. Um, <laughs> that was literally the case, because no one can tell them tell me. Uh, the, the, uh, I mean, I, I will try to avoid it single evening, so I'll be very brief. Um, because the world was very different when I was first a minister, but politics and government changes all the time. And this place we're in, maybe the same physical building, nearly falling down. Uh, but the conduct of politics and the atmosphere of politics bears little or no relationship to almost 50 years ago. Uh, and the, the civil service has changed, the, certainly government has changed quite immensely. It's just uh, the, the culture has changed. Some of the issues are debating Europe then, debating Europe now, too short. But the, 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 the actual things you're talking about, the culture, the daily experience, the mechanics, uh, are totally changed. Uh, I first became a departmental minister in 1979. Uh, I had not expected to be sent to the department I was sent to. I'd been shadowing two others during our period in opposition. But I protested to Margaret that I'd been tra transport prime minister. I know nothing about transport. Uh, my dear boy, you will soon pick it up, she said, and put the phone down. Uh, and so that's how it's long. That's why I had to find out anybody knew where the Department of Transport headquarters was. Uh, in Westminster. Uh, the only relevant experience I had, apart from a few years as an MP, uh, was PPS to a minister, uh, and then being in the government whips office, which involved obviously dealing with the parliamentary business uh, again, but actually did take me into the old meeting in ministerial uh, offices. That was a lot. And I think that was typical of my day. The idea that anybody who was trained for any of this would have been regarded as utterly ludicrous. I'm not sure I'd overdo it now. But a whole lot of completely different personalities would be selected for a combination of personal and political reasons, and you set off uh, to find out what you're doing. And I, I found it was in the dreadful Martian Street Towers. Fortunately, a guy met me at the door who said he was my principal private secretary. I didn't know what that meant. Turned out to be a very good man indeed, who was a great help to me. Uh, and he showed me upstairs, and uh, I discovered I had something called a private office, etc. Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, what induction they're given now, I've no idea, but preparation, essentially, I had nil, apart from my political obsessions the previous few years. Uh, and so I don't really know, through my long ministerial career, how all the other ministers worked out how to do the job. I think we all devised it personally, and we were very different personalities. I think, no doubt, helped by the civil service 
pressing me to do things and ones I actually came to trust and get on with, I developed my own way of doing it. But I had the foggiest notion uh, whether other ministers did it as I did it. My Secretary of State was as brand new as I was, he was not a mate of mine, uh, but, but, but you know, we kind of worked out together what our relationship was going to be with the civil service and with our colleagues. And, and, and uh, I don't know what you I think I ran a quite collective uh, system. Uh, if you haven't, you haven't been asked me what, what, think, what I think you ought to be trying to do. I learned firstly what the structure was. I got used to this bizarre daily practice of having meetings all the time uh, with large groups of people around a table, trying to weigh up who these people were, not just say what their job was, but trying to get some sort of relationship with them and form a judgment of how you best worked with them and so on. But it's entirely about myself. I'm more garrulous, which is your problem now. Now I'm old than I was then. But I've always been quite talkative, always been quite sociable, certainly very extrovert, I think, a bit of an optimist. By the time I finished, I was uh, at the Treasury, and then again after that at Justice. I also ran my debate, my, 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 my department rather like a debating society with the uh, top of the office, contributing all the time if you had a, a department that wanted to do that. The Home Office didn't want to do that. There was all facts and stuff in the traditional, only the permanent sector would never talk to you, giving his opinion, wouldn't let anybody else tell you what they really thought. But I think that's not that's the side. Well, let's, but let's then, just, I, 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 I had to make it up as I went along. Yeah, great. Um, and then that took you some way. Jack, um, does that ring true? Certainly back then, as Ken has put it, um, that there was really no preparation and well, I, I just want to say in Ken's defence that uh, whatever he didn't know when he got to the Department of Transport, six weeks later he seemed to be entirely on top of the job because the very first meeting I had with the Minister, he would have forgotten that I had, uh, and, and it was six of my uh, North East Lancashire colleagues and myself, Ken very kindly agreed to see us about the motorway, um, and uh, Ken was absolutely on top of his brief. Um, so. Uh, and, and as he You're very unassuming, uh, the way you, you describe your career. As he continued. Um, I was very, very lucky and fortunate um, in the preparation which I had, which was unusual. First of all, I worked uh, in the Labour government between 1974 and 1977, three and a half years as special advisor in the Department of Health and Social Security and in uh, the Department of Environment and Transport uh, for six months until it was taken away formed a separate department. Uh, and that gave me a, a, a really detailed knowledge of what ministers did, just sitting, as it were, alongside them. Um, the second thing, uh, which is really rather crucial in my case, uh, is that uh, I married a civil servant. Uh, uh, and uh, we still have on the wall of the bathroom the one and, a page, one and a half page letter that my wife Alice was sent by her director of establishments when she told this man um, that uh, she was intending to marry a politician. And this was a list of the things that she could do or she couldn't do. Anyway, it's a page and a quarter saying that things she couldn't do, like she couldn't come with me in a walkabout, she couldn't sit in a meeting, certainly not clap if I was attacking the government of the day, whoever that was. Uh, and so it went on, um, and then it's finished with the immortal line, 
You may, however, do those things which are consistent with your wifely duties. <laughs> <laughs> so generous. Anyway, Alice, who uh, well, actually worked for Ken uh, for a period. She was very good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had the Chinese wall. Uh, you know, I didn't want to know there was no... No, I trusted her completely. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. she didn't tell you what was going on. She absolutely did not, and, and it would have been completely hopeless if she had. No, thank you. Uh, and we managed. I was managed to ensure that I was not shadowing the department in which she was. But of course, you absorb the sort of civil service culture, and I got to know a lot of people. Um, and the last thing is that uh, I, I became my first job as the same secretary. I'd been a lawyer. I continued to take an interest in the law. I shadowed the job for three years before I went into. Uh, government, we did a huge amount of preparation. And once Tony Blair became leader, he really worked us in the shadow cabinet because it was fairly clear that we were going to, going to win. And th there was a great effort made to stress test our policies. And the final thing was that I knew, because he'd worked with Alice, uh, the permanent secretary uh, in the department, and I knew where it was. And we shared a lot of stuff with us in the service. All that said, uh, it's one thing to think about what it's going to be like being a minister. It's another thing to be, I've never been a junior minister, to go in at, to a department like the Home, Home Office and be presented with a series of really difficult muck or nettle uh, decisions. And they came in very quickly. I mean, one of them was a chap called David Shaver, who was a renegade officer from the security service. Uh, did I uh, take him to court for being a renegade or do we just allow him to leave? Well, I decided to take him to court. Uh, and so it went on, and do you deport this person, don't you deport this person, what do you do about the prison crisis, which is an eternal verity. But anyway, um, a bit like Ken, uh, if I may, uh, you know, I discovered that, roughly speaking, I can make a, de uh, a decision. Every so often you made a decision which was wrong, uh, and I learned from Ken uh, an, an, an immortal conversation, which I once had with Patrick, Paddy Mayhew, great uh, Attorney General in the Conservative government, uh, who before the election he said, I just want to give you one bit of advice, dear boy. So I said, What's that, Paddy? He said, If you get yourself into detritus, go in the Commons, put your bloody paws up. Uh, he said, No, so bats, just apologise. Uh, and actually, if you do that and say, I'm sorry, that's wrong, you can move on. <coughs> if you start trying to explain a decision which is indefensible, it gets worse and worse and worse. Jack, thanks for that, and we might come back to some of those points. The point about what you can learn in opposition and shadowing is it's something the Institute has heard from a lot of former ministers, and one reason we encourage people to stay in the same kind of role in, in opposition. Um, Ken, you want to pick up on a couple of points that Jack has said, particularly how you make decisions and what do you do when it goes wrong? Well, uh, I mean, you make decisions, all decisions, first you're going to find you know, what we can to make decisions. I mean, I put before that, one of the things I just very shortly do. The first thing you've got to do is, if you haven't already done it before you've got into a department, is tell us what you're doing it for. You've got to have some idea of why you've taken on this rather peculiar career. So, so if you, one assumes, it isn't always the case with politicians, that you have, have some basic principles, some basic beliefs, that you actually have some views on the way in which government and society ought to be going. Uh, and you're able to relate to that. And then, when you master the brief, which you do have to, you know, the working, you do, do, the first thing to do, the first thing to do is I tried to avoid taking any real decisions for the first six months until I felt completely on top of the subject 
and felt I'd really, by meetings and wedding trips. Three months? Well, my rule was don't do anything really big for six months. So then you'll be feel at home, you'll be self confident with your officials, you'll be alive the toss with them because you feel you win pretty much as much as they do. And you're by now, you've got yourself an agenda. You know what you want to do, so then you start doing it. Actually, after two years, you realise that you've made a complete pig's ear and you now understand it properly. You, you are total. You now believe that you have a master plan lying in front of you, what you're now really going to do, and usually when the telephone rings and the Prime Minister's having another reshot and, and you're sent off to another department that you never had to go to. So because of the complete lack of preparation, I usually, not always, found myself in a department that I never expected to be in. Uh, the first second, the first weeks and months would be spent getting in my head around the brief, actually understanding what act, what were the kind of things I had to decide, and, and what approach I was going to take to serve my own idea uh, of what the government and what politicians should be about, uh, and then also getting a proper working relationship with the people, uh, working out who you could trust, who you couldn't, who was. Uh, any interest in ideas, who was just trying to depend on an old departmental line, who was trying to resist you doing anything, uh, who might be up for actually helping you pursue your own agenda. All the time, being quite prepared, because I'm, I'm slightly impulsive in taking decisions. My permanent secretary of the Treasury used to say that he, when he would have had a big crisis on, he would instantly leave his room and come running down the corridor in order to get to my room before I'd started issuing instructions as to what we should be doing. Once you get hold of me, I don't mind. Bloody great open discussion. Every member of the department expressing their view. And then, you, of course, you modify your views. It's quite obvious that you, you know, particularly if you've got to know somebody, he's got to know what they're talking about, and you modify it without losing sight of your aim. So, but it, it's, yeah, I go back, I'm probably making it fire sound, very ad hoc. It was very ad hoc, it was a fascinating experience. I did it for years and years and years and years, and the longevity of my career is the only thing that's undeniable. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it, it did change all the times it went, went along, uh, and I became ever more competent. And then, then, of course, once you've actually got into the department and acquired confidence and feel you're delivering your own agenda or finishing off delivering the agenda of your predecessor, which can be more difficult, that you've probably got sacked because uh, this agenda's in a bit of a mess, then you begin to feel your way and, and get going. But it, it, it does, it's a sort of... Okay, and then you also concentrate on the presentation. You've either got good your skills, or we haven't. They, they should get better as you go on, uh, and then you've got to decide. But I'm, nowadays, presentation comes first, and then you decide what policies will improve uh, the presentation of the government. Um, I do take a very old-fashioned view that you ignore that. I always cite Margaret. It is true she never read newspapers. She never couldn't interest her in opinion polls. We never had a popular policy when we were delivering it. Uh, you decide what you want to do, and then I'm quite a competitive individual as well. So, so then out you go, and, and you, you keep selling it and explaining why you're doing what you're doing, what the purpose is, and answering uh, the criticisms and the tax as they come in. The tax rolls you write, shift a little. As Jack said, if you make a pig's here, you send the company to the right, 
I used to say, if you're going to have to do a U-turn, I've done a few U-turns, do them with a flourish, do them with a cut out, you know, it's just just say you're wrong, man. We're wrong, man. Thank you for answering my point so directly. Then, Jack, if we come back to you, um, feelings I wanted to pick up on one uh, or tips you'd have for dealing with civil service over a new minister. Um, and the other one, just following what Kim was saying, what do you think you get better at? Tips on um, dealing with the civil service. I mean, don't see them as the enemy. Um, and that, that's the most fundamental one. And it, it's become a sort of running sore. Uh, in British politics for some ministers to blame the civil servants and say that everything's been stuck in the civil service. Uh, my experience on both, in respect of governments on both sides of the house was that the, the ministers who routinely blamed their civil servants were the ones who couldn't make decisions. Now there were some exceptions to, uh, to this and um, as I said I was lucky with all the preparation I did have to, as it were, uh, hit the ground running, we had to make very quick decisions because we were a new government and we were, you know, life was going to get better if you remember the song, and of course it did. Um, uh, and, and we had, a, but we had a very big program and, and we brokered that with the permanent secretary Richard Wilson and his staff beforehand. Very occasionally, I mean, the reason why you, you shouldn't treat the whole civil service an enemy is very occasionally you need to be discriminating and say, I'm terribly sorry that person's got to go. Um, there was a a chap who had been in it, running a union which was a bit of a backwater under Conservatives, but we wanted to make this a sort of flagship policy. Um, and this guy was completely useless, but he was, he was obstructive as well. Anyway, I was expatiating across the kitchen table one night to my wife, and I happened to mention this bloke's name, and there was a silence. Uh, and then she started giggling nervously, and she said, oh God, she said, I palmed him off on the Home Office from the Treasury because he was MVG. Uh, so I said, well, thank you very much indeed. Anyway, I then did speak to the Permanent Secretary and got him uh, gently moved. Do you get better? Yes, or What? So that was difficult. That was difficult. Uh, uh, do you, do you, yes, you, I mean, if you don't get better, you have to go. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, what do you get better at? Um, what you get better at? You get better at judging your colleagues uh, and the ones who... who will share your collective uh, decision-making. Better at handling number 10. Um, I mean, and a lot of, certainly in the Tony Blair days, early days, a lot of ministers um, were frankly intimidated by the kind of number 10 machine. Again, I've been in opposition for 18 years. Uh, I, oh, I, I, was, I was more senior, uh, and uh, I had a good relationship with Tony, and I wasn't going to be intimidated, so I, so I wasn't. But I think, I mean, you know, number 10 say, and I used to say, well, private offices are running, number 10 say, I said, well, number 10 is building, so okay, who was it that picked up the phone? What are they saying? Uh, and I don't really, you know, if the Prime Minister wants to talk to me, that's absolutely fine. Meanwhile, this is what I'm going to do. But if you're a junior minister or a cabinet minister nervous about your position, number 10 says uh, can be very, very intimidating. Um, I think it's, in terms of, it's about Bronwyn how you get better at decision making, you have to get quicker, um, and, but in, in my case anyway, um, certainly read the papers, because you know, sometimes I'd be reading the bloody papers, uh, and you find a kind of nugget um, way down at the submission, which explained uh, the rest of the argument, uh, and was about to lead to the end of your, if you hadn't noticed it, could lead to the end of your career. Not very often, but sometimes. So, I mean, yes, I like, 
Ken is more instinctive than me, but I'm still pretty instinctive. And I mean, the group, I mean, that sounds rather sort of trite. The crucial thing about being instinctive is going back to Ken's point, you need to know what you're there for. Okay, so if you don't know what you're there for, you've had it. I didn't know what I was there for, um, uh, and uh, you know, we were quite tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. We wanted, I wanted to get crime done. Um, I wanted to get uh, a lot of constitutional reform, which is my responsibility, through. So we knew what we were there for. Um, so that meant that you had a kind of template in your head against which you measured um, the, the submissions uh, coming through. Um, and, and you just get more familiar with it. Let me just say that when I went to the Foreign Office, um, which, which I was moved to four years later, um, I hadn't had any experience in foreign affairs. So in a sense, I, uh, and, uh, uh, I thought, crap, what do I do next here? This is quite a big job. It had a very much better building than the Home Office and much more finery. Um, so uh, what I did is I, I uh, as the Americans today, reached out. I, 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 I called up Douglas Heard, with whom I had all the relations, asked him in. Uh, asked him for a briefing, uh, which was extremely helpful, and asked him for a reading list. Uh, and he produced a reading list within a day, ten books I should read. Happily, I'd already read nine, because I had a great interest in European history. Um, and anyway, the, 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 um, the tenth was Kissinger on Diplomacy, uh, which is, for those of you not read it, is very good on the uh, Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, and actually rather... Um, stayed on diplomacy, but anyway, um, that, and I gradually worked out how to be a foreign secretary. Back when the foreign officer was Europe. There was no real two things jacked here. I mean, really, 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 really. treating the civil service, the civil service, the envy, and I do agree with you, uh, any sort of useless ministers blaming the civil service, I mean, uh, then the civil service are not the envy, some of the you know, some best people with, uh, were civil servants. Uh, it, it, it's a bit more complicated than that. Firstly, as it were, the first period of my, my, my career, the pre-Blair period, uh, Thatcher and, and Major, um, the, 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 the one thing you discovered was that civil service culture, department by department, was very different. The, when, when you got to reshuffle, you were practically moving into a different world because some of the departments worked quite differently and had a different feel and structures to, 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 to the others. And the political attitudes they took varied quite considerably as well, in my experience. So I went to a fair few by the time I finished. Uh, and uh, when we started, I was in the Thatcher government. What I said, the Thatcher government was determined to do things. It was activist, it was radical, it was controversial. Some of the departments, their reaction was trying to calm it all down. They were against change. They, 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 it took some time to get used to the fact that it wasn't just a question of explaining to the minister what the policy was and how we did things here. The minister would read his red box and then come back and start wanting to change it. And I think after two or three years they got used to this. But early on, transport I didn't have the problem. The previous minister hadn't been building any roads. I was keen on building roads. So I survived my meeting with you to two formidable ladies used to come clattering into my office with maps and everything else. Soon got me going, and that's about only bypass in the country. It would be like a house of bars, we depend on them. The Department of Health was quite but it, 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 it didn't want any of these rows. 
But the purpose of the Department of Health was to keep things calm. My job was to get more money out of the Treasury. Above all else, we got to minimise the amount of industrial relations <coughs> problems we had. That was the early 1980s. And, and uh, they had a habit of uh, dealing with the outside world. You'd find your draft letters would a line or two would be faithfully giving your policy, whatever this duty was, and then the Department of Health policy, they, they set out their own policy rather separately. <laughs> it, it was, uh, there was a continuity. Once they got rid of me and the battery rights, they would adopt just the same approach to our opponents and try and stop them upsetting the upper part of it. It took a long time before the Health Department, uh, and I had to find my own people to deliver the reforms. Once I persuaded Margaret to have the reforms, I then had to find get the civil service team together, a little team to do it. And my permanent secretary said he thought it was all very interesting. He'd been trying to follow all these debates I've been having and all this stuff that was coming along. And unfortunately, we couldn't do much on the moment. He hadn't got the people spare to work on it. I had 6,000 civil servants. I had no idea what 2,000 people did. We had an enormous number of civil servants, but he'd got no spare. So I practically recruited my own younger pushing and ambitious men and women who, I'm not sure they would agree with me, who were actually interested in working on a rather transformative <laughs> policy. Education was the only one where they were politically hostile uh, to what we were trying to do. They'd been politically hostile. It's the only one where it was political resistance, <coughs> not partly political. It was the educational establishment of the time's resistance to the Ken Baker's reforms, which I had been sent along. Uh, but there were hostile. There was no doubt. I had great arguments which were small be political with the dominant deputy secretary. When I occasionally had chats with Margaret, she seemed to be traumatised by her period of education. She hated the I won't go on to share. Then the other thing has now changed. What, what I think is a very bad change, an old fashioned reaction in Laura's to it, is what happened with the Blair government, which now is with Cameron uh, 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 and with Theresa May. This enormous number 10 establishment. All these apparatchiks who seem to think they make all the policy and they control all the presentation and, and they're ringing up trying to tell you what to do. I used to hate the calls when I was a justice because the system was just going on. Number 10 were on the line, want to do this. And I said, well, don't I tell number 10 I'm meeting the Prime Minister sometime in the static. I'm not going to be interested. And I found them having meetings in the department with my officials, <laughs> and I got them all thrown out. Because the vote's going to be at five to seven, okay? your, your time is more constrained than uh, many people here. Um, so I want to go uh, Jack on that, and actually to both of you, on just what tips you would give ministers now, bearing in mind Ken's first point, that many things have changed, then we'll come to questions. <laughs> the, um, Ken's, I know, Ken is absolutely right about the fact that different departments had very different culture and feel to them and not much movement between them. Uh, and he's right to about the Department of Education, as I shadowed Ken, uh, and although I had to sort of keep my sympathies fairly quiet, I was much more on his side that they were uh, pursuing the Ken Baker reforms than uh, the old education establishment was, who were uh, deeply reactionary, um, and tied up to a, a really reactionary um, education world, uh, who um, have devised policies for other people's children, whilst ensuring that their own kids went to private schools, held down bottom, including in the Labour Party. Um, so, the, uh, you, I, I think 
Being able to tap into outside advice is very important, um, and I, I, I did do that. Uh, I had only two special advisors uh, in, the, um, in the home office, and two in the uh, foreign office, whilst this number 10 was ballooning. Um, uh, but uh, they were in, invaluable. So uh, that's, I think, very, very important. And also advisory groups, but I mean, not. The other, the, the other thing, the other thing I, I really did learn. Um, was if you've got a policy where you're pretty certain that the clients of the department are going to be resistant, as well as probably people in, in the department, you have to set a schedule of meetings and just drive it through. So you give, uh, two, I'll give two examples. One is on um, the Stephen Lawrence report. Now, uh, the Lawrence report, thanks to a very good chair and all the rest of it, uh, came out very well with a big agenda for change. I was petrified that it was going to go the same way as the SCARM report, which is also a good report on the Brixton riots in the 80s, but simply got shoved on the shelf. So I said, right, we're going to start a working group. I'm going to chair it. We're going to meet every month. The cops are going to be there. The prosecutors are going to be there. Everybody's going to be there. And we're just going to drive it, it through. Oh, are you sure I'm secretary? All this stuff. Anyway, that's, and I got Lawrence, Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence there as well. Uh, and uh, once people realised I was actually quite serious, and police are conservative, but they also happily recognise an order when they hear it, and they, they, they go on with it. But if I hadn't done that, there wouldn't have been any change. The other, the other thing was that in the fag end of um, the Brown government, I was very keen, this is much more a niche subject, but quite important, on piloting what were called social impact bonds, where you bring in private money, uh, into uh, for, uh, for social benefit, and the private investors get some of their money back, typically their, their charities, but they may not be, uh, if things work. And we were going to trial this in Peter, Peterborough Prison to, uh, to set the prison a target for rehabilitation of offenders, have it properly monitored and measured. Uh, and the very um, Ronnie Cohen, a very distinguished um, man in the city, was leading this. Um, and the department were very reluctant to pursue this. And the Treasury, although Gordon said he was in favour, were raising myriad of objections. So I said, OK, we're going to have a meeting every two weeks. I just had a meeting. Every, <coughs> at the end of every meeting, we scheduled another one. And after a while, they got the point uh, and uh, got that through. I mean, so it may sound niche, but I wanted to ensure this was a, a bipartisan policy. I've got ministers on site. But so shifting this machine was really tricky. I was bound to go to a, a question, but you're, you're, I'm sorry, I want to say briefly, but your tips for new ministers now, someone's yes. starting now. Tips for new ministers, um, read, your, read your party's policy. Uh, uh, read, read your party's policy. Read some political memoirs, um, uh, because they can be informative. Um, go into the... Ask your boss, the Prime Minister, or your, your Secretary of State, if you're a junior minister, what he or she wants you to do, and write it down. So keep a daybook, so you've got the stuff not just in your memory. Um, ensure that you're happy with your private office, because sometimes the personality of the private secretaries won't work. Then ask the Permanent Secretary to, to move them on. Um, and set yourself a series of timescale. The other thing, I mean, certainly if, if you're a Secretary of State, work in a collaborative way with your ministers. So these are I mean, quite elementary things. I had a meeting every Monday in every department I was in with everybody around the table and we'd find out what each was doing. Ken, tips? Well, 
the main one, I, 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 uh, just be clear, you know, what it is you're wanting to do, uh, and just keep asking yourself, are you actually making progress in actually delivering it? Are you doing it? And obviously, be clear in your own mind why you're doing it. So long you actually have a sense of purpose, and, and you actually keep checking that people are delivering what they've told you they can deliver, you've got momentum, and uh, then you'll be able to enjoy the job uh, uh, reasonably well. Uh, and I'm sure something that people don't remark on that much, actually enjoying it. Well, they might better enjoy it. I mean, it depends on your temperament. Uh, there are many easy ways of making better living. So I can't understand why the devil anybody does it uh, who doesn't enjoy it, but without naming names, I've worked with people who just miserable the whole time because it's, it's a really rough trade. And you get particularly more and more nowadays. Personal pressures upon people uh, are very bad indeed. Try and build a team around you, people you trust in the uh, department. If you want a good private office, you'd more say over who's in the private office than anywhere else. They're double agents. Uh, they will tell the department what you're up to and help the department prepare for meetings with you. You've got a good private office, they'll tell you what the department's up to and, and what the government secretary and the deputy secretary. That's much better, I can see my audience. <laughs> uh, I have to shout a bit louder so you can hear me. Uh, they, 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 they need a core team up inside, I mean, with the health reforms I already explained, I had to do that. And I, all the department joined in after a bit because we obviously were doing it. And I had to get that keen team around me who remained the key team. And then I got the senior officials actually joining in and hastily deciding they'd better participate in these, what turned out to be quite momentous events. So I concentrate on those things. Work out how you're going to keep good relations with your Prime Minister or your Secretary of State or Junior, but with the Prime Minister when you're in the Cabinet, uh, mainly with the aim of getting him or her to let you get on with it and stop trying to second-guess you and interfere. You may have to have a bit of a session at first. Once they know what they want to do, uh, then if you've got to get their confidence somehow. And then bear in mind how you're going to feel and mark yourself a bit how what progress you're making. Don't judge everything you do by the publicity you're getting. If you're Secretary of State for Health, you will be the most hated man in the United Kingdom for so long as you're Secretary of State for Health. It doesn't matter what party you're in. Nybevin was hated and Lloyd George was hated for bringing panel doctors, insurances, and everybody will be after you. And don't, if newspapers upset you, don't read them. What you've got to ask yourself, because this is a judgment that others will make, not just you, it's a key judgment. If I manage to keep going for two, three years, when you see how this is panning out, will then be, they won't remember anything about the rows you were having in the first year, they'll completely be stopped by most of your colleagues, let alone the general public. Will most people be persuadable that actually you've made a difference Things aren't too bad, really. It's coming along, okay? And if you've achieved that, then you've handed on something. You've actually done something. You're in politics to make a difference. Well, for good or bad, and you hope you have changed yourself, it's good. Others will. You, you can show that things have moved, and your agenda has gone into place. I only twice had four years in departments. By that time, you know one way or the other, you're doomed to discover you've made a complete pigs here, or that it's gone quite well, and other people will share whatever view you come to. Yeah, that's great. Both of you have just written a pamphlet for us. 
leader of the House with which there are so many. Um, I did keep that with away, for sure. Uh, I made it clear, you know, step by step, that if another dangerous to talk to me, I brought away the talk to the Prime Minister. Um, and, uh, and, and I, in any way, I had a shared agenda with Tony Blair about the Home Office. And happily, Gordon didn't know anything about the English legal system. Uh, and he had other things on his plate, uh, so he let me get on with it. Um, if you're the Foreign Secretary, uh, don't do the job unless you acknowledge that the person, and it's true at all times, the person who ultimately is responsible for foreign policy is the head of government, the Prime Minister, because they are effectively, the, the, in, in practice, the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. So there has to be connection uh, across uh, uh, Downing Street from one side to the other, and in, although I had plenty of arguments with Tony, it worked very well, not least, uh, by, I, mean, this is, I was also very lucky in this respect, Tony's first diplomatic advisor, who's a very senior diplomat, David Manning, uh, was one of only two people uh, who we really knew very well as personal friends in the Foreign Office, and so I had just a very straightforward relationship with him. Um, management, I, I like to interfere. So one of the other tips I, I can just give you, I, every so often, if I happen to find myself with a spare half hour, I disappear down the corridor uh, without detectives or anything, just walk down the corridor and go walk into somebody's office. Uh, and they'd be slightly surprised and ask them what they did. Uh, uh, and or go into the canteen and just pump myself down. You get lots of information this way, uh, and you, you get a real feel for, for, uh, for things. Or go find the loos that, I mean, obviously they're still segregated, but go find the loos uh, that uh, are used by the staff, not uh, break out of your own loo. Things like this. Uh, go <laughs> you, use the main lifts, not the ministerial lifts. Uh, so the Department of Justice, I would always use the Ministry of Lifton, would have a kind of seminar. And, and, and I mean, one of the things I discovered with the Department of Justice was that about a third of the people taking the lift, certainly, were working in IT. Uh, it was absolutely extraordinary. I, mean, I used to, every day, I'd say, what, what, what do you do? And we got to the whatever floor it was. Um, so um, it caused a bit of, um, in the Foreign Office, interestingly, because I was concerned about the organisation, uh, it caused a bit of tension between myself and the, and the permanent secretary. We, I mean, he's a very good guy and friend. Uh, we sorted it out, but he, there was a good board there, uh, and I used to chair it. And I think it made a difference. And in um, and management information, that gradually got better. Uh, and there was a much more of a sort of managerial thing. The last thing I just wanted to say on modern management uh, methods in the, in the foreign office, I got myself a coach. Um, uh, this was also on advice from uh, Alice Perkins, uh, with whom I've been uh, married for uh, 40 years, but so she, because she had, by that stage, experience in the private sector as well. And it made a big difference. And it helped the private office, and it helped the, the department relate to what I wanted to do. Well, first of all, sir, I don't agree. A friend of mine, uh, back in the leadership campaign once. Uh, he was a great foreign secretary, he wasn't born to be foreign secretary uh, by nature, but he was, that's uh, my point about, I have no idea how my colleagues run the bombs. He temperamentally, in every way, was totally different to me. As you say, patrician, not very forthcoming, very, very cautious what he said, charming, he must work completely uh, on top of the job. He was a great foreign secretary and very useful in cabinet discussions, so because he and I had political instincts were very similar, but uh, I mean, Lord only knows how he, he ran departments. He was the last foreign secretary who didn't suffer from Jack's problem. 
Thanks very much.